0: This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. So I hope that people read the book and feel like, okay, we can actually address climate change and we can address racial injustice and we can address sexism and all of these huge systemic problems through design. Mm. Again, not a cure-all by any stretch of the imagination, but a way to start chipping away.
1: I'm your host, KC Finney, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. So this is a special episode of the podcast because I invited my colleague, Suzanne Labar, the editor of Fast Company's co-design section, to talk about our magazine's new book, Innovation by Design, Creative Ideas that Transform the Way We Live and Work. Design has always been central to Fast Company's coverage, and in fact, Innovation by Design is an award we give out every year to companies doing just that, showing innovation through design. So a book like this felt inevitable, but as Suzanne explains, the events of last year put a particular focus on not just making another pretty coffee table book, but rather a guide to how design can be a force for meaningful change and also calling out the ways that design has failed us. Hi Suzanne.
0: <laughs> Hi Casey.
1: This is a first on the show. I've know this this feels very insidery but in a good way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Excited to have my colleague Suzanne LeBar on the podcast today to talk about innovation by design, creative ideas that transform the way we live and work. This is a book that I feel like heard about a while ago in some meetings and it's just very it feels very weird to actually hold it in my hand now because i feel like i've been hearing about this for a very long time but before we dive into the actual book i wanted to talk about this phrase innovation by design which is not just a phrase it's become a very popular franchise a fast company that you've spearheaded and so this may sound like kind of a no duh question but how do you define innovation by design
0: Great question. I mean, it's pretty simple. I think the idea is that it sort of has a double meaning, right? Like we're saying innovation times design equals, you know, award winning design because innovation by design kind of wraps up this awards franchise that we do every year. But we're also saying that innovation and design are intimately linked and you kind of can't have one without the other. Design is not effective if it isn't innovative. Um, Innovation really doesn't happen without design. Hmm. Uh, So that's pretty much it.
1: Hmm. I love that. And so how would you define effective or good design?
0: So I would draw a distinction between effective and good design because I think Uber is a really good example, right? When Uber came onto the scene many years ago, it completely revolutionized how we hail a taxi. Mm -hmm. It made it so easy. And that was really an example of extremely effective design. But there were all these consequences as a result. Um, You know, it completely (laughs) (laughs) gutted the taxi industry. It it led to more pollution in cities. It basically spawned the the gig economy, which has been hugely detrimental to a lot of people's lives. That, to me, is a really good example of effective design, but not good design. Mm. Good design is something that solves a specific problem but is also not leaving a trail of chaos in its wake, (laughs) basically. And there's an interview with the Dean of Design at Oakhead University, Dori Tunstall, in the book. And she has a really nice framing that I think kind of sums up what I mean by good design here. She calls it respectful design, which is this idea that, you know, design needs to be respectful of users, of communities, and of the planet. If it's not, then it's not doing its job. Hmm.
1: And I find it interesting that you that you highlighted Uber in designing a, a better system for, you know, for hailing a cab, because I think a lot of people still get stuck on this definition of design as being something specifically, you know, how like design of architecture, design of buildings, when it's much broader than that. And so in that, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the parameters of design, because it's so much more than, Just like a physical object, clearly.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say that in the past, you know, 25 years or so, which is the time span of this book, the business community has really gone from understanding design as an aesthetic exercise, right? A way to make a computer look more beautiful and and more desirable, something you want to buy or a way to make a brand look a little bit sexier, so people want to buy their products also, to something that is completely built into the DNA of a company and informs its strategy and informs all aspects of product development. And Apple is, of course, the preeminent example of a company that really embraced design as part of its core strategy and you see in everything Apple does, although, you know, <laughs> this is there, definitely people are critical of, of certain aspects of Apple's design these days. But yeah. overall, everything from, you know, the design of its hardware to the design of its retail stores to its service design is very carefully thought out. And that is by design. That is a very explicit strategy. And it shows that design is permeating every aspect of their business, to tremendous effect. I mean, it's a now a 2 trillion dollar company. Jesus Christ. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My god. I, that, every time I hear that that figure, I just I I just kind of pause for a second cuz it's just insane. But, <laughs> you know, so I definitely want to get into this book now because, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the conversation, this is something that has been in the works for quite some time at fast company. So, you know, take us through what sparked the idea for this book and just the journey to get it, you know, here on my desk right now? <laughs> Take me through that, please.
0: You know, I honestly don't know what the initial idea was because I was on maternity leave.
1: That's right. When
0: all of that was inked.
1: Oh my god.
0: So I came back from maternity leave at the end of 2019 and Stephanie Mehta, who is our wonderful editor in chief, said we're doing a design book and you're running it. <laughs> Welcome back. You
1: just birthed no. a new life. And now, here's this exactly. book project. Jeez.
0: Um, and so, at the time, we knew, we knew roughly that we wanted it to be an anthology of fast companies design coverage because we have been covering design pretty rigorously for the past 25 years, but we didn't really know what we wanted it to be beyond that. Then COVID hit, and then George Floyd was murdered, and that ushered in the protests of the spring of 2020, and Donald Trump was still in office, and the economy was in a tailspin. Like
1: A lot was happening.
0: <laughs> a lot was happening. It was chaos. And we knew that we couldn't just put another like pretty design coffee table book out into the world. We didn't want it to be that. So that helped solidify the framing of the book, which sort of looks at design more as a force of progressive change without being too kind of Pollyanna-ish about it. It's still critical of ways that design has has failed a lot of people. And then from there, I started thinking about sort of the different areas where design has made the most impact over the past 25 years, and that informed the chapters. So that's why we have a chapter on Silicon Valley, retail, social good, um, and a couple other areas. And then I just started researching our archives, which was was a little challenging because it was the middle of COVID and, you know, the physical archive is in New York at our office and I'm in California (laughs) and nobody was going to like go to the office and send me all the old archives. So I did a lot of the research online and just like, honestly, based on my own memory, I've been here for off and on for over 10 years and uh, I've read Fast Company pretty religiously before that. I also relied very much on uh, David Litsky, who is another editor who's been here for a long time. He has like an encyclopedic knowledge of Fast Company's print archives.
1: Yeah, he's my direct editor. I know. It's insane.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He was so helpful. He was great. And um, so then we, we had well over 100 stories at that point and just kind of narrowed them down based on how well we thought they told this broader narrative of the evolution of design over the past 25 years. We had a wonderful editor at at Abrams named Michael Sand who helped us sift through all that material.
1: So in this book, what are some of those like standout design stories that readers can look forward to?
0: So I think my absolute favorite story in the book is an interview with a, a Microsoft designer. It's a story with, about a Microsoft designer named August de Delos Reyes.
1: I flag that one too. <laughs> it's so it's good. It's an incredible
0: story. Yeah, he at 42 years old had a freak accident and became paralyzed from the neck down, and uh, was you know then bound to a wheelchair. And it completely changed his view of the world. He now saw that there was a huge mismatch between his abilities, and the design of the world around him. And he saw that as a huge injustice, which it is. And so he gathered a team of designers at Microsoft, and together they came up with a new framework, basically, for how they would design products. And they called it inclusive design. And the idea of inclusive design is that you are researching sort of overlooked communities and what their needs are and how they adapt to the world around them. And then you design products for them, which ultimately are better products for everyone. And Microsoft came up with a bunch of examples of this as a result of this process. They redesigned Bing, their search engine, which lets you do driving directions so that it's like a more natural interaction instead of saying like, turn right on Elm Street. It's like, turn right at the McDonald's which honestly is now like a common feature of a lot of driving directions, but it was totally new at the time. Another example is that they developed a font system specifically for that, that's easy for people with dyslexia to read, but ultimately it makes it easier for everybody to read. Is everyone can read faster with this font. So they really came up with a lot of different solutions to problems that again, were faced by these sort of overlooked communities and August's goal was nothing short of like completely reinventing how the design industry designed products. Like he wanted to take his vision to the whole world. Hmm. And I actually had dinner with him uh, very shortly before COVID hit. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, it was my last. It was my <laughs> last professional dinner before COVID hit. And he had just gotten a job at a at a banking startup, and he wanted to bring these same ideas to banking, which is like. That would be really useful in banking.
1: Absolutely.
0: The horrible irony of this story is that he got sick with COVID at the end of 2020, and he actually died. Oh. Yeah, heartbreaking. you know this world that he had fought so hard to remake ultimately failed him. Uh, so I, I feel like we are able to honor him and, and his story and his and the work that he did in this book. And the story was written by uh, Cliff Kwong.
1: Yeah, no, it's such a remarkable story. And, you know, one thing that I found interesting is, you know, the distinction between inclusive design and universal design. You know, the way Cliff describes it is like, it's a descendant. Inclusive design is a descendant of universal design. And so, you know, when we think about all these kind of phrasings around design, I mean, like, how would you define that distinction? Because I think people are pretty familiar with universal design and inclusive design sounds pretty intuitive, but I'd love to hear a little bit about that distinction because I think that that's what I find so fascinating in kind of studying the different levels of design, really.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think of inclusive design as more of a process rather than the resulting design. So whereas universal design is like the product itself, you can see, you know, OXO, Good Grips, the the peelers. Kitchenware
1: come oh Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I learned in reading this story in the book that that line of kitchen gear started out as a way to help people with arthritis, but the company showed that by focusing on the needs of one community, you can really reach a wider group of people.
0: Right, exactly. And that is universal design at its best, right? That is exactly what it's supposed to do. And inclusive design similarly is taking those communities sort of at the margins and elevating their point of view. Again, I think the distinction is that It's a process, and you can use an inclusive design process to develop anything from a website to a physical product to truly anything, whereas universal design, again, is more focused on the actual product itself and not not necessarily the process for getting there.
1: So I know it's hard to follow up a story like August's, but are there any other standouts in the book that really drive home this idea of innovation by design?
0: Yeah, so there are two others that I really love. One of them is an interview with Jonathan Ive in 1999, and Jonathan Ive was a longtime head of Apple's design. Uh, he had since moved on, but in 1999, that translucent colored iMac had just come out, and Apple was really on the ascent. And on top of that, Johnny Ive almost never did interviews. Like it was <laughs> it was a total coup to get him to talk for this story. The interview is a really fascinating insight into his thinking, and and there are some sort of surprising insights in there. The two sort of big takeaways that I get from it are, one, he really felt a sense of responsibility for designing computing systems. Like it wasn't just, oh, we're gonna put out a cool product and lots of people are gonna buy it and Apple's gonna make a lot of money. He really felt like he had to help people understand what a computer does. And sort of that was the idea, because people didn't know it was 1999, right?
1: Right. <laughs> That's so crazy to think, but it's true. Yeah, yeah
0: <laughs> I mean, honestly. Now
1: that we have like a computer in our pocket with our phones, it's hard to remember, you know, time when it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is today.
0: Totally. And so that idea of making the iMac case translucent, was really brilliant because he was literally saying, like, you can see inside and and see all these little moving parts. And, you know, this is what it is. This is how it works. The other insight from that interview that I thought was really compelling was just how he talked about being fiercely focused on the user's needs. You know, at that time in history, technology was very much engineering driven, not a lot of consideration of how users actually use technology. And he cites an example of the cable connector and where you put it on a computer. And for engineering purposes, it's best to just put it on the back. It's the easiest thing to do. But that means that when you're actually using the computer, you have to turn it, right? Mm -hmm. And pull the cord out or put it in, whatever. It's annoying for the user. So he fought to keep it on the side of the computer, or rather to put it on the side of the computer, because that was what was best for the user, even though it made things very difficult for his Counterparts on the the engineering side, so I just think the whole thing is a fascinating insight into the thinking behind this person who really did help Apple become again this you know two trillion dollar yes. company. And I can share one little anecdote that's not in the book, uh, which is that I talked to the the reporter who interviewed him for the story, Charles Fishman, and apparently he had been like pursuing Johnny for a long time. Was constantly emailing calling Apple PR, trying to get any access at all. They would just say no, or like ignore him altogether. Finally, they agree to give him 30 minutes on the phone. They won't let him near Apple headquarters. They won't (laughs) let him near Johnny in person. They'll let him talk to him on the phone. And at the 28 minute mark, the PR person chimes in and says, Charles, you have two minutes left. Last question. We're out of time. <laughs> and, and that was it. Like basically, the interview ended early.
1: <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and it
0: god. wasn't like you know this wasn't a combative interview. It was like a pretty straightforward interview. But that was you know Apple was so secretive about its design and so sort of insular. And you know that that also is just sort of a fun little detail about that era of Apple.
1: <laughs> god, it's <laughs> <That is> just. <laughs> God. I, just, I just got an image of like, you know, Apple headquarters, like surrounded by a moat and just like, who goes there? Like, just like you can't see behind these walls. But like, I mean, it's just I mean, not, that's not far inaccurate. from accurate. <laughs> you can see
0: their headquarters now. It actually does look like a giant moat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so, and what, was, and what was the other standout story that you mentioned? You said you had two more.
0: Oh, yeah. So there's one other story that I really love that I actually wrote about 10 years ago about an architecture collective called Situ Studio. And they use architectural tools to uncover human rights abuses. Wow. So this particular story focused on a conflict in the West Bank where Israeli soldiers were firing tear gas grenades at Palestinian protesters. And it's against open fire regulations to directly point a tear gas grenade directly at a human being because you can kill them. And that's exactly what happened. One of the protesters was killed. Now, the Israeli soldiers vehemently just denied that they had directly fired at the protesters. So what the architects did was they used their own 3D modeling software, like the exact same stuff that you use to design a building, and they recreated the events of the day using videos and photos and whatever materials they could find. And they were able to show that the soldiers had actually fired directly at the protesters which was a violation. And this opened an inquiry into his death. What I really like about that story is that it shows that, you know, the tools and methods of design can be used to solve, like, much more urgent problems than, you know, designing another condo for rich people or whatever.
1: Right. And, you know, to that point, to kind of wrap up this conversation, I mean, like, what do you hope readers take away from this book?
0: I hope that it is an inspiring look at how design can affect change. I mean, I live in California where the sort of effects of climate change are being felt every single day. You know, we have poor air quality like three plus months out of the year because of the smoke. The rest of the country is dealing with these tremendous storms. I mean, we're feeling the effects of these huge changes. And it can feel really hopeless, right? Like you see governments not really making big changes and sometimes it's just hard to feel like there is a way forward. And I think design, while not the only solution by any stretch of the imagination, is very much an optimistic profession where people are very focused on coming up with specific solutions and progressively minded solutions, you know? So I hope that people read the book and feel like, okay, we can actually address climate change and we can address racial injustice and we can address sexism and all of these huge systemic problems through design. Again, not a cure-all by any stretch of the imagination, but a way to start chipping away.
1: Right. Uh, innovation by Design giving us hope. And I'll take a glimmer. I'll take any any slice of hope I can in these <laughs> very uh, perilous times. But yeah, it's a fantastic book. And I, I hope you're incredibly proud because it's it's amazing. It's really well done. So thanks for, thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. I feel like
1: I should interview colleagues more often. You know?
0: <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm going to interview you next.
1: I hope you enjoyed this special episode of Creative Conversation, and be sure to check out Fast Company's new book, Innovation by Design, Creative Ideas to Transform the Way We Live and Work. And as always, make sure you subscribe to Creative Conversation wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you soon. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon
0: the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at Verizon.com.